Another pot of coffee is brewing and I'm actually admittedly a little bit jittery having had way too much today already. But then it is the weekend, so why not? I am currently celebrating one of my best reading weeks of the year. I have been devouring books left and right, including the one I will be reviewing on my next episode. However, for now, I will keep on enjoying the beautiful weather we've been having, a light breeze is in the air and I have been spending my early evenings sitting on the balcony with a drink and a book. The best way to spend those warmer evenings. All that means is that it's time for the next episode of Being Bookish. I'm your host Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, TV show marathoner, hermit, long-term depression sufferer and very honest caffeine fiend. Before we get started though... Not a year goes by that I don't hear about someone that I'm close to battling against cancer. Hello, everyone. My name is Nick, and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure, a charity event going into its sixth year to help raise money for the Cancer Research Institute to fight for a future immune to cancer. This year, we're aiming for $20,000 starting on the 19th of May. We'll be live for over 45 hours of amazing content from people all over the world. It's going to be such a wonderful time. Please mark your calendars and please help us spread the word. The only way we can reach more people is with your likes, your shares, your comments, your engagement, whenever and wherever you see the event online. Together, we truly can make a difference. Let's fight together for a future where we don't have to hear stories about loved ones, family, and friends battling against cancer. Please join us May 19th in our fight for hope. Light the candles, get yourself a fresh cup of something hot or a glass of something chilled, depending entirely on when you're listening and your preference, of course. And let's get started. And I'm here this week with Shane from What's Shaking with Shana. Hey. Good morning. Hey, Ray, how are we doing? Very well. Thank you for joining me. We are here, as I've already said, to talk about a book from before either of us were born in 1961, the first book in the Smiley series by John le Carré. And that is, and my brain has completely died, Call for the Dead, which is a very random title and also doesn't make sense until you start reading the book. So before we get started on it, I am going to read the summary because that always helps. Well, not always, but sometimes. George Smiley had liked Samuel Fennan, and now Fennan was dead from an apparent suicide. But why? Fennan, a foreign office man, had been under investigation for alleged Communist Party activities, but Smiley had made it clear that the investigation, little more than a routine security check, was over and that the file on Fennan could be closed. The very next day, Fennan was found dead with a note by his body saying his career was finished and he couldn't go on. Smiley was puzzled. This was actually Shane's suggestion. So do you want to go into why you picked this book? Absolutely, I will. Thanks, Ray. Um, I discovered... Yep, brain fart. I discovered the spy who came in from the cold... In like 1998, uh, you know, 30 or some years after the fact, a friend of mine lent it to me and says, you've never read A Spy Who Came In From The Cold? I'm like, no, absolutely not. Read it. Loved it. And I'm like, I need to read more John Le Carre. So I went out and I found this collection of stories. And the first one being A Call for the Dead. I love this book a lot because I like spy or even murder mysteries or mysteries that don't rely on modern technology to have all the answers for you, where it actually, you have to use your head. That's why I like this book so much, because it really, to me, demonstrates somewhat of an anti-hero 
in the spy world. He's George Smiley is not what anybody would say is a typical hero in anything. Absolutely. I love that about exactly. And I love that about George Smiley. And I also love that this is really a thinking book versus we're using all of the technology in the world to solve the problem for us. And I've always been a fan of British books, British authors, huge fan of uh, Sherlock Holmes, uh, that entire series. And for some reason, this one always uh, speaks to me. And I just like the intrigue without technology. That's the thing. I mean, it's based during the late 40s, early 50s. So 10 years before the book was written, it is based in that era. So it's post-war, Cold War era, though, obviously, there is all the talk about East and West Germany spying. And we get to know George Smiley's origins but at the same time, he also he already feels quite old. He's talking about retirement and he's friends with people who are retiring or coming up to retirement. I found it quite interesting when he's talking about he feels really old and the character he's talking to, oh, you're, you must be feeling your age. And he's 42, <laughs> which made me feel ancient, I have to be honest. But the the one thing that struck me is the book starts when George Smiley, we find out that Smiley has been married and his wife, after a relatively short period of time, runs off with a guy to Cuba. So he's sort of in that awkward situation of, oh, I don't know quite what to do with my life. And he's already had experience as a member of the intelligence of intelligence organization. It's before the era of, well, it's not even before the era because it's written around the same time as some of the James Bond novels, but it is very much focused on the reality and the gritty side of things rather than the glamorous women and guns and money and everything else. Oh, you're absolutely right. It, it's a much more gritty spy spy novel. And to your point, I love how the book opens. He's talking about, his wife and leaving him and, and we learn about George and get a description of George from people who knew his wife and, and how they described him. Um, I like Isn't how they it? say he was breathtakingly ordinary. Ordinary. Yeah. That I actually, when I was reading through, I highlighted that because that was really interesting because he is the kind of guy who's not going to stand out in a crowd. He is the epitome of the perfect spy. He blends in. Nobody's going to notice him. Yeah, the, I think they also said he was short, fat, quiet disposition, and be speckled. He, he reminded people of a bullfrog. <laughs> yes. Most unglamorous and unflattering, and many people would have been insulted by it, but he seems to be, in fact, don't they, at some point they comment on how he's oblivious to their opinion of him. Yeah, and I think they also said he, he also had a penchant for really, really bad suits, and they fit him really poorly. And he was oblivious to that, too, how people thought not only was he short, fat, quiet disposition, but he also dressed very poorly, and he married well above his pay grade, as they may say, or well married well above his station, because they, they really describe Anne as being on this pedestal of the upper crust snobbery that is probably proper London at that time. Never been to London. Don't mean to offend you. Just <laughs> She's titled as well. She's part of the nobility. So she is titled. She has money. She has station. She is beautiful. She is elegant. And she does at one point say that he would have been her perfect, her ideal one person. But at that point, she's obviously not ready for that. She wants the glamour, the excitement, which is why she ends up moving to Switzerland with a Cuban. Uh, a race car driver at that, right? It's a little yes, bit more exactly. exciting than, than George. Yes, he, she runs off with more the James Bond. Exactly. Um, do you think maybe Ian Fleming was jealous of these books and was like, you know what, I need to create James Bond more like the Cuban race car driver? I know that's not true. I'm just, yeah. Yeah, but at that point, he was probably more focused on Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Another great book, by the way. Which he wrote. 
<laughs> so maybe that was, um, I think that the inspiration for the character that she ran off with was more James Bond than George Smiley. And George Smiley was very unassuming. He was good at his job. He blended in. He didn't do anything to make himself stand out above all his colleagues. But at the same time, he was good at what he did. And he, it was almost as though he was just accepting of that fact. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point, how he didn't really question how he got involved or what he did. And there were several comments made uh, early on in the book and throughout about how he loved his job as being part of uh, the intelligence apparatus because he looked at it as an academic excursion into human behavior. And he's often referred to as having um, the strength of his intelligence is what really made George Smiley stand apart and not his ability to fight martial arts in six different ways or, you know, whatever it is we get from our spies and spy movies these days. And to your point about him uh, being at that point to about retire, there's another great thing in there, uh, a comment from, from John LaCaria about George Smiley. And he says he entered middle age without ever being young. I highlighted that too, because that struck me as, he, he he was accepting of that fact, but it was also his own realization that, wow, I I flowed through life without even realizing that I was it was passing me by. But hey, there's nothing I can do about it. He was very understanding of the fact that his in his life he had done all these amazing things that he would never get credit for outside of the organization he worked for, but they were just what he did. And his everyday life is incredibly routine. And dull and boring. And most people would just assume, because I think they made reference a couple of times in the book where people thought maybe he was like an elderly businessman going off on an excursion with a young secretary and a dirty old guy and all that. Because he just was that every man blend in, didn't stand out. And actually, I think he enjoyed that fact. Yeah, you wouldn't exactly find him going into a bar, ordering a martini shaken, not stirred, and being flirted with by a Russian spy, a female Russian spy who's out there to get the latest British intelligence secrets. Can you imagine George Smiley sitting at a Bacharach table? I mean, you know, like... <laughs> Smoking he, he a cigar. <laughs> exactly. He really wouldn't. But that, that I think that he is underestimated because of that. He is the perfect spy because he doesn't look like somebody who is expected to be special. He's not super svelte, very, very fit, very likely to have done martial arts and carrying a gun in his pocket. He isn't, he's the reality of it. He's the guy that does all the intelligence work. I, I keep on thinking about the, the awful film Spy with Melissa McCarthy and Miranda Hart. He is Melissa McCarthy and Miranda Hart. Just not as loud. Just, yeah, just not as loud. But he <laughs> is the one who is sitting in the back room doing all the intelligence work, collating all the data, writing all the reports, and making sure that things get done. But at the same time, he's also the Jude Law character getting things done, but not quite as incompetently. Oh, exactly. And to your point, he really does have that, not only that intelligence, but that level of experience uh, being somewhat of an agent or an operative running agent um, at the beginning, right before World War II in Germany yeah. and then in other locations. So I, I think there was something about his ability to view and see human behavior, not just physically, but also from the reports that really set him apart and made him question so many things because... Uh, call for the dead one when that actually happens he immediately questions it going wait a minute and i don't know that most people would have made such a big deal out of it as he did right from the get-go see that's the thing i think okay to understand it i think we probably need to explain essentially he interviews someone who is suspected of being of um selling secrets to the communist party 
a another member of the Foreign Office called Samuel Fennan. He goes to question after Fennan seemingly commits suicide, and there are questions on that one, he goes to speak with Fennan's wife. And there is a phone call while he's there. And that is the call for the dead. And it's a wake-up call taking place at 8.30 in the morning. And there are certain things that spring to mind. They make him question the validity. Why would Fennan ask for a phone call at this time in the morning if he was planning on killing himself? And then there are other things that start making him question why he'd kill himself. Like, isn't there a, there's a glut, a cup of hot chocolate and yeah, certain and think- other things. They just make him think, hang on a second, this doesn't quite add up. And it brings out this entire complex mystery that unfolds throughout the book. And we're not going to give it away. Remember, no spoilers. We're not going to give away the entire motive behind it. But there is there is some very clever machinations going on behind the scenes. And and without and without giving away any spoilers, you never really do learn by the end of the book the true inspiration of what really was going on. You you get a gleaning, but you never really I don't think truly understand all of the motivations by the end of the book. And it is so much fun because it it, it happens in a very gritty real world setting, and Smiley. Um, as we clearly indicated, is not your man of action, but he gets involved in quite a bit of action throughout throughout this story. Well, that's the thing. I mean, he even ends up at one point in a hospital bed for a period of time that you don't know there is something going to happen. You don't realize that his time in the hospital bed is going to a take as long as it does. You're not aware of how long, how much time has passed, but also it gives him that that time to think and that's what he is he's a thinker and i'm glad you brought that up because i i I read this story first you know 20 30 years ago but coming back and revisiting it he was in the hospital for a few weeks um and for the type of injury he received today we're like really why in the hell was he in there for three weeks you know a couple of days and now somebody would be sent home so that was what really struck me at first but they really use that time, as you noted, for him to try to start untangling some of these threads because a lot of things just didn't add up, even though his bosses and the uh, English government really wanted this to just be a case of a suicide. It was almost as though they felt that by making it a suicide, it was far less complicated than it needed to be. And it's possible that there were as soon as I saw that bit and I was thinking, they definitely wanted to be a suicide, so what are they hiding? And it was quite obvious there were many, many other pieces on the board at that point. And they did a great job of, of really putting in some great characters uh, along for George Smiley to interact with. Uh, I think it was Inspector Mendel um, from Special yes. Branch of Scotland Yard. I really enjoyed him because I think you know, when they wrote this book in the early 60s, which I think took place in the late 50s, it was a unique take on a, a single bachelor uh, in, in England during that era that just seemed a little different and unique, more so than what I was expecting when they started describing Inspector Mendel. <laughs> I, and also the discussion about regions of London oh, well, you don't want to go back there, and that's a little bit rough. All the comments as they were driving through the city, as he was commenting on, oh, well, you don't want to go around there, and that's not nice. And you're thinking, okay. And you're half expecting, I think, because of the era it was written in, and that's something you have to really remind yourself of when you're reading the book, is there are going to be opinions in here and views that are questionable by today's standards. Very questionable by today's standards. Yeah, there there was a little one snobbery in here, and too a little too much emphasis on somebody's ethnicity, right? Yeah, there was a lot of there were a lot of comments on, given the time period they were talking about, because it was after the war and everything else. There was very a great focus on Jewish religion and Jewish race. 
there really was, and and part of that too is because Samuel Fennin and his wife were both were both Jews, and his wife was a survivor of the Holocaust. Uh, the Holocaust. So there was, but the way they explained it, to your point, doesn't really feel like that's the way we would talk about it today. Um, now, back in reference to your parts of of England that you should stay away from, uh, London specifically. Uh, having never been there, I'm just going to agree with him that some of those places are horrible. Like Surrey. I'm sure that place is just god awful. Surrey isn't so, part of London. Like, I know I've never been to England. I'm just throwing out words at this point. I'm Surrey saying, is a very oh, nice county. <laughs> oh, well, see, there you have it. This is why you don't have somebody from America talk about London or England, especially if they've never been there. So That's the thing. I think that it is one of those things with regard he was writing about this at the time he was living. I'm guessing he was living there. So he has far more experience of how things were during that period of time. And this is perfect proof that things change. Yeah. And I like the way he talked about some of the suburbs and how they didn't keep up the suburbs because they wanted their area to look more weathered and older and more charm, you know, be an older ancient piece of property or part of England, I guess it, it was that, that kind of consciousness being here, uh, in the U S people don't really think like that. I'm not saying people over there think that way now, but here it's really just kind of the opposite. You want everything to look brand new and polished, right? So it's yeah. more of a bragging point than it being old. Uh, it's kind of like the adage in, in probably all of Europe, England, especially titles and legacy and money and houses and all of that stuff. That's something you inherit, and that's a responsibility. Here in the U.S., that's actually looked down upon, um, and we put more emphasis on starting with nothing and being self-made and not having all of these additional help along the way. However, there there is too much mystique to that because there are a lot of billionaires in this world right now, especially here in the U.S., who claim they're self-made, when in reality, you know, they got a couple million dollars from this guy and that guy to get them started. Um, all I want to know is when is that guy going to show up and offer me a couple million dollars, you know, for my show? That's all I'm asking. <laughs> I I know what you mean. There is a certain kudos to being inherited, having inherited wealth, though. To be to be fair, a lot of people who inherit their wealth or inherit a property because they've inherited a title. They have no money with it. They just have the property, the responsibility of the property, which is why so many are turned into nice exclusive hotels or are part of the National Trust or British Heritage because they can't afford to run them. But during that particular era, there was very much a, a, an incredible amount of kudos. Of course, Queen Elizabeth had only just inherited the throne in 1950. I want to say 1952. She had only just ascended to the throne, so it was very, very new. There was a new building of relationships, and to a certain degree, people with power who had a title had access to things far easier. They were able to get in to meet with the bigwigs and businesses because titles had power, and I think that is something that came across in the book because people we already know he married a title and he was discarded by said title, but that still held some appeal to people. He was still, that was what he was remembered for. And of course the fact that his wife still had affection for him, even after she left him. So it, I think it's really difficult with, with the UK with regarding the, um, things looking aged and weathered and more worn it was after the war. A lot of places had been destroyed by the Blitz and by bombings, especially in London. So they were trying to rebuild things and make them fit in with what was already there. And back to your comment about uh, the titles of the book and, and position. Smiley's boss, um, I'm drawing a blank on his name. Um, I want to say it was I want to say William, it was, uh, was it Maston? Maston, that's what it was. I was going to say Magnuson. That was in the park. Um it was a big park. Maston really comes off to me as being part of that more entitled culture, more of a of a fop, I guess, the way he dressed, the way yeah. he act. Uh, and, and the cabaret never closes, I believe, is what George uh, uh, said once or twice in reference to Maston. 
good lord, the cabaret never closes. Um, I've never been to a cabaret, so I'm assuming they're open 24 hours. Yeah, I'm supposing Moulin Rouge would be classed as a cabaret. But yeah, I think Maston probably was part of the nepotistic era. His father was someone powerful, therefore he was pushed to the front of the queue when it came to getting a, a massive, great big promotion, which is how things seemed to work in the um, intelligence sector in that era. I'm making assumptions here, but that is how it's always portrayed in books and in films. Oh, such yeah. and such as dad has power, therefore they're going to get that promotion above you. Or, or, or uh, a position within the cabinets or the, the prime minister's cabinets. Uh, overall, it seems like it, it's that certain element because I've read, to your point, several, several books over the years about British intelligence right before and during World War II. And it seems like they went to a lot of the universities. That's where they found a lot of the people to help with this. But to the other point, there's an awful lot of, oh, my dad or my brother or my uncle or my cousin or my sister's nephew um, is always seems to be a part of the intelligence apparatus at some point instead of just on merit. Um, I don't oh, yeah, know how absolutely. true that was back at the way, but it, a lot of books do portray that to your point. But then you also have to look at using a more modern spy tale to further boost that. Look at The King's Man and the King's Men trilogy in general, all of the people that are in the first film, Secret Service, apart from Ali character, are legacies. They are all people whose fathers or uncles have nominated them for that role because that's what they've been born into. Their father was in it, their brother was in it, their cousin was in it, whoever. They have not won that on merit. They have been given that as a familial gift. And that is how it seems to seemed to be in that era. It was not something that was earned. So Smiley was almost an, an oddity in that respect. Unless there is something in his past we're not finding out about in this book, he came into his role honestly because he was good at it. And that really, I think, what is... What always draws me to George Smiley is some of the other comments we've already made, how he is very ad, uh, or I'm sorry, he's very breathtakingly ordinary. God, I love how they explain him with that because he is nothing spectacular, but it's his mind, his study of human behavior that really sets him apart from all of these people who did have the title or who did have the family connection that brought them in to the intelligence apparatus and I think that's what really makes you like George Smiley so much is he's also not much of a braggart, even though there are things he could be bragging about that he's accomplished. He just seems like that ordinary guy that just wants to get it done and very concerned about doing the right thing, which not everybody else in this book seems very concerned about. Yeah, he is. I think that is one of the things that does make him stand head and shoulders above his colleagues. It is the fact that he is concerned about finding the truth and getting that truth known rather than just settling for the easy route, which is what Maston wants to a not even to a degree. Maston just wants him to stand back and go, yeah, it was suicide. That's fine. He was depressed after I questioned him and he took his own life. But in reality, he knows that there is far more going on and he wants to resolve that because he knows to resolve what is going on behind the scenes is going to actually sort out a lot of other issues that they've got. And as they start sorting all of this out, we even learn more about George and, and what he was doing in the early 30s and in Germany and other places as the spy. We really learn more about George as the story continues to build and, and go on and what he was capable of and the involvement he had behind the scenes in so many different stories and locations. And one of the things I really like about this story, too, is I can't think of the name of the club, but it's that members-only club that he takes Peter Guelm and and yeah. uh, Inspector Mendel to uh, to have have dinner and only members and no new members and it's a very strict private club from people I believe they were at Oxford together I believe yes 
it might have been Cambridge, which is where most, but he was, I think he was an Oxford guy, wasn't he? Because one of the comments that he makes when he's in Germany in the 30s is it made him realize how much he missed Oxford. I really liked the way they set that little story up on that private club because it also rem reminds me of Arthur Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes, the Diogenes Club, uh, in one of the books to where members only, you couldn't speak. It was just other people, uh, single men who wanted to be together but be alone and not speak to each other was a weird set of rules. But it really reminded me of that, my, my point of reference. And I would love to have a club like that, right, that you start with a group of colleagues and friends, and it's private, but yet you can go there anytime you want, and it's always going to be there for the lifetime of all the members. That to me is a cool idea. They may have a lot of stuff like that in England and Europe, but not much of that here in the U.S. that I'm aware of. Yeah, it's very much like Whites, which is a club that appears very, very often in primarily romantic fiction in the, well, romantic fiction based during Regency and Victoriana and, and the Georgian era. However, it was a real club and it was where gentlemen met to make wages and have drinks and cigars and enjoy their own company. It was men only, it was members only, and it was just primarily titled members only. But it's very much in a way like Diogenes and the club that Smiley is a member of. But it was one that was exclusive. So what you're really saying is I wouldn't have been able to be a member. Thanks for... Thanks for bursting my bubble there, right, Jeez. I wouldn't have been able to be a member of any of them anyway because I'm a woman. <laughs> oh, we would have snuck in somehow. Um, <laughs> I'm just saying, I like the idea of those things, but when you get to the whole title, money, entitlement thing, you know, it, it does still set apart, even in today's society and, and the haves and the have-nots, especially when you start talking about uber billionaires, they're really still set apart from everybody else. And it always makes me a little uncomfortable. But again, I still want to have a private club just for people I want in um, to keep the rich entitled people out. You, you, should we start a club, Ray, just for normal, average, weird, nerdy people and nobody else can be a member? But isn't that called indie podcasting? Yeah, but anybody can listen to the podcast. I'm just saying. Yeah, but they can't private... do it. <laughs> We should have a private podcast only for members. Yeah. So we'd reach like, what, five people? Maybe six? <laughs> Maybe. You never know. More people might want to join. But that that's it. I think the thing that is quite ironic about Smiley's membership of that club is the fact that this book has a very, very strong origin in communism, which is all about equality and everyone being the same. Yet here we have a guy going to a club that only members, which is elitist, can be part of. So there was some irony in that. There is. And then when they were investigating Fennin's membership to, to the uh, Communist Party in England uh, during the 20s and 30s, I believe Smiley even said um, most of our uh, most of everybody on our intelligence team were, were members of the Communist Party during that time. Yeah, no because difference. it was because they all joined when they were a university and it was just a thing that was done. It's kind of like yeah. university students now, really. They join a club of some kind, whether it's a sorority, a fraternity, or though we don't have sororities and fraternities in the UK, we do have um, student unions and associations. They are all membership. Which means not uh, everybody gets in and not everybody joins. Right. I almost joined a fraternity when I was in college. <laughs> surprise, surprise, I was rejected. Um, so I belong to a group that we referred to ourselves, the don't let this happen to you crowd. And it, it, it was fun. We had our own <laughs> membership. Yes, so you still joined a club that was exclusive. It, it was. And actually, I'm going to uh, hang out with two of those members uh, at the end of the month. So uh, I haven't seen some of those guys in years and we still try to get together uh, occasionally, but yeah, uh, we do have an exclusive group, but if anybody wants to be a member of the, don't let this happen to you club, uh, go ahead and wire me $500. Um, <clears throat> and I'll make sure you get uh, your membership packet in the mail. Yeah. You don't need to send them the address. 
Just wire me the money. <laughs> Just send me the money. Oh, but don't worry. You. Yeah, you'll be a member, and I'll even get uh, one of the princes from... Uh, uh, Nigeria? Nigeria to, to, to help out, and you'll get a welcome letter from them. So it, it's all good. It's all about board. Fantastic. See, that's the thing that I find quite interesting about this book. It's not a very long book. I was talking with a friend about... Um, we were talking about my reading because we talk about that every weekend. We talk about, oh, what books have you read this week? And I mentioned that and she said, oh my, but John le Carre writes really long books. And he does. He's renowned for writing really long books. However, the first book in the Smiley series is 160 pages long. And there's a lot in it. There is. It's jam-packed. It's actually his first novel ever. And I think that's probably why it was short. You know, we're talking late 50s, early 60s. You know, maybe writing, you know, 2,000-page novels wasn't really all the rage back then like it is now. But to your point, it was a good novel. You still didn't know where it was going. You still got a lot of clues and, and building, and you don't learn everything right up front. So it seems more detailed than what the, the page count may, may lead you to believe. Yeah. But I think it's because it's very engaging right away on, holy crap, what's going on? I got to try to help figure this out. I like that more than some books that you read to where there it feels like some chapters are just filler to reach a word count. Yeah, I did talk about one of these. If you want to find out what I thought about um, the Thursday Murder Club, I will post the link to that one below because that was definitely a novel that was a lot of filler. And I was disappointed. But anyway, let, we're talking about this. This is the first thriller that I have reviewed on the podcast. So when you suggested it, I was thinking, I haven't read John Le Carre in a couple of decades. And I'd never read this one before. So it was quite interesting to read the character development because I remember Smiley and Smiley's People and everything else from the, t I think, from the TV show or the film but I'd never read one of the novels. So it was interesting to sit down and just focus on that. I read it this morning. Well, <laughs> it's a great fun read. I've actually, I listened to it on audibles twice in the last week. Um, once to kind of refresh myself and again, to, to listen and write some notes and some comments, just so I don't sound like a, you know, blathering idiot on your show. <laughs> but I, I think it's so much fun being the first book in the first novel. It really kind of sucks you in. And I would highly recommend uh, the second novel um, that he wrote, and it's the second George Smiley novel called A Murder of Quality, which is more of a murder mystery than a spy novel at all. There really is no spy novel part in that. It's solely a murder mystery, which I really enjoy, too. Uh, the Constant Gardener is another one of my favorites of, of John le Carre, as well as A Spy Who Came In From The Cold. And then I think there was uh, Single and Single, if I'm saying that right. That was another really good one of his that I, that I read and I loved. I just, Kicker Taylor Soldier Spy, The Taylor of Panama. I've enjoyed a lot of those. But I always come back to this first George Smiley book because I think the way it's described and how polished it's written for a first novel and how short yeah. it is, it really is a great book. It's almost like this is the book that shows his potential. It's like, this is what I've got. Read others, want to read my others to find out more. Because this book almost feels like it's a bookend. Because we get the start of his story. But we also know that in this book, he is very close to retirement. So it's almost like this is his last hurrah, but it's also his hello it's like yeah, in the it, middle, there's a stack of other stuff that's going to happen. So the other books in the t in the series are sort of like slotted in to between his wife leaving him at the altar and his desire to retire. <laughs> exactly. That's the thing. I mean, his life is very um, mundane. That's the word I'm really looking for. His life is mundane. When he he notices that there's someone moving around in his house and he's come going back to his home and he notices that someone is in his home, he just knocks on the door and asks for himself and the person in the house doesn't know it's him. So does that mean he doesn't have any photos in his house? 
does he not have any personal anything? Well, I think there was a point in the book where they were they were talking about just that, the decorations and, and how his house looked. And he had removed most of everything about Anne, except maybe one or two things. So, no, to your point, there probably are no pictures of just him if he doesn't have any of those reminders of him and Lady Anne together. So you're right. He, his house is probably bare of that. It's probably devoid of any of those types of personal uh, connections. It's, it's it, almost like he's removing elements of his own personality in order to keep this, not an air of mystery so much as a negative space where his personality would be. He very much in the uh, the way they describe him in the book in his home, he very much is that intellectual, let's, I dare say, nerd who would rather be sitting down next to the fire, drinking a glass of, of brandy, reading 17th century German uh, poetry, right? There's, I, there's a really few good is... 17th century German poets, to be fair. Uh, I'm more of a fan of the 12th century, but we'll talk about that later. I just made that up, don't tell anybody. Um, <laughs> well, isn't the 12th century not so much German poetry as Old English? I just say things sometimes without realizing what they mean. <laughs> and without realizing that I'm a bit of a, a literature nerd. Oh, no, trust me, that hasn't... Uh, <laughs> that's not lost on me. I know you are. That's why I make the jokes. <laughs> now, you were talking about Smiley a little bit at the beginning, uh, especially this is like his his hello Almost yeah. seems like it's a goodbye. He's ready to retire. Interestingly enough, when you read some of the other novels, they kind of retcon his history. They don't make him as old and ready to retire in later novels. So it's almost like they've they've slotted them into the middle of that of that one book. So maybe the beginning of the book with his wife leaving, his getting married and his wife leaving him is the beginning of his story. And then you've got that massive gap where his career takes place. So that moment where it says he realizes he got old without having lived, without ever having been young, that's the bit that the rest of the books are telling you. Yeah, they kind of retcon the timeline to make him not seem ready to retire in later books as he seems to be in this one. Which is an interesting way to tell it. So in a way, this is his hello and goodbye. And then we get his life as he's living it for the rest of the books. And again, this was the first novel from, from John Lacari. So he probably had no idea what to expect. And I don't think authors in general, they may now today more so than usual. They don't always set the book up for it to be a continuation of the story or additional sequels and additional books. So maybe that's why he wrote George Smiley the way he did in this. Yeah. Without intending George to carry on like he did in, in later novels, so they had to retcon him a bit more. See, that's the thing. I think, as you said, I think authors these days, they actually create their universe before they write the rest of the book. So they know that this is going to be three books or that's going to be five books. I've I've just finished reading the second book in a series that was already intended to be four books when she started writing the first one. So some authors have that intention from the word go, I'm writing a series. Well, God bless them, because I know people like myself don't have that level of foresight. I can barely put five words together to make a sentence, let yeah. alone planning on six six future stories on the same concept. Yeah, but that's, that's it, though. I mean, talking of authors, we've already mentioned that there are some authors who write books that are way too long. Um, so George R.R. R. Martin. How long have they been waiting for that book? And I think here's, here's I just, a clue: don't bother waiting. <laughs> Seriously, pick another series. Pick one that's finished. Well, and I think I just saw uh, to that point exactly. I just saw a story I think yesterday online where he said, "Hey, keep waiting. It's going to be longer than I thought. I've decided to do this, 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 and this." So yeah, keep waiting. It may or may not actually get done. But another author who is, is uh, a little long-winded, uh, James Michener, uh, in some of his novels, uh, especially like uh, Poland, 
I don't know if you've ever read that. I'm going to throw that to a suggestion. If you've never read that, that is a wonderful, epic book. But get ready because that thing is long. It's massive. It's thick. It's thousands and thousands of pages. But the interesting thing about that story is it sweeps from, it starts out in the 1980s communist Poland, goes back into, I believe, the 700s AD and sweeps forward to current communist Poland at the time. And it intertwines three separate families throughout this long history. It's a wonderful book. It's actually, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to just throw that out there, but as we were talking about long not office, that's not that That's not so bad. It's only 616 pages. But it's one of the few books, it is, and it, it's one of the few books I can remember that actually made me cry. That book made me cry. And you wouldn't think a historical reference book like that in intertwining families would. I turned my dad onto this. My dad loves the novel as well. It's just a really good story. That's the thing. It's always nice to read a a different book. And what I, I, I love sagas. It's been a long time since I read one. I think the first saga I ever read was Gone with the Wind. Now, that is a big book. It's over a thousand pages long. But then you think about, that's the thing, you think about book length. And I was talking with someone the other day and we were talking about book length and perception of book length. And it is over a thousand pages long, as in the book by Stephen King. And when I read it, I didn't realize that. And I was really young when I read it. So when you think about how long these books are, it's the perception of the story itself. And it only feels really long if you're not involved in the story. that That's a tremendous statement right there because it really is, right? I mean, I, I've listened to things on audibles that's 20 some odd hours, but it never felt that way because I was engaged throughout the whole thing and it was just a lot of fun, whether it's a long or short. There's a novel I really like by, um, oh man, I'm trying, I'm drawing a blank. He, he, he wrote Jurassic Park. Michael Crichton. Michael Crichton wrote a book, The Eaters of the Dead. It's probably not much longer than this book. And I love that novel so much. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The 13th Warrior with Antonio Banderas. Yes, a long time ago, but I have seen it. It was based on the book, The Eaters of the Dead. It's like his way of trying to find through historical record the real story behind Beowulf. I really like the book. The book is even better than the movie. But again, it's not that long. I think it was maybe 100 pages, and I read through it probably in in an evening. But It's actually 304. It didn't feel. felt like it yeah, was short. See, that's, that's my point. Hmm. Perception of the length of a novel is all down to how involved you get in the story that's being told. A book can be 150 pages long and take a week to read. I read Brideshead Revisited, not a very long book. It, I had to break it down into tiny sections to read it because I didn't enjoy it. I tried to get into the Wheel of Time recently, and I just the Robert up. Jordan book. Yeah, and I just gave up after an hour or two because I was trying to get into it and I just couldn't. Not saying it's a bad book or you shouldn't read it. It's just I don't think I had the right frame of mind when I was trying to read it. And there's a few other books I've started like that, too, where I get into the couple chapters and I just walk away because I'm not feeling it at the moment. Not that it's a good or a bad book. In yeah. a lot of instances, I'll come back to it and, and, and read it or listen to it again and be like, OK, I really enjoyed that. now. Yeah, that's I think that's it. It is all down to mood. I had at the beginning of February, uh, beginning of April, end of March, beginning of April, I had reader's block. I picked up six, seven books, started them and put them down because I just wasn't feeling them at that moment. And then I cleaned my palette with a book that I really loved by an author that I don't often read any longer because she doesn't write the genre that I like her writing anymore. I read that book in probably three or four hours and it was quite, it was 400, 500 page books. It wasn't small. Read it in in a few hours and my block was gone. And that's all I needed. But it was a case of finding that right book to kickstart my desire to read again. And then I read stacks of books 
at the end of towards the end of the month I read eight books nine books and it's all down to how I felt at that moment in time the books I was reading weren't kicking me in the right direction and it really is oh. down to what you want right in your overall general mood because there's uh, not just books but there's actually some movies and TV shows I feel the same way about there might be a movie I really want to watch but I know it might be a little dark or a bit of a downer of a movie I got to be in the right mood to sit down and watch that because normally I'm fairly upbeat. So I don't want to be brought down unless I'm in the mood to be brought down. Yeah. Uh, for example, I just watched Blade Runner 2049, right? It's been a few years now. Yeah. I just watched it last night uh, because I was finally in that mood. I enjoyed it. and I'm Not as good what, as the original, though. No, it's not. But I, I think they did a good job. Some of the cinematic things they did in there i really enjoy like the big open spaces and there's only one or two people in the frame oh that, that was of, that's brilliant that, the sense of being alone and, and and then the feeling you get i also really enjoyed uh, another movie i think that portrayed that really well too and i'm not remembering what that's called either so we'll move on <laughs> um you know i i've said this before but when you take a gallon of knowledge and pour it in a shot glass of a brain which is my head, you're going to have some spillage and lose a few things. So it happens. I haven't, I still haven't watched the latest Spider-Man. I have the desire to watch it at some point, but I wasn't, I'm not in the right frame of mind to sit down and watch it yet, despite knowing that everybody I've spoken to who's seen it thought it was fantastic. I still haven't got the urge to watch it. Though I watched, last weekend I watched... And I'm right now, right here, right now, I am going to say, do not bother wasting time on watching Snake Eyes, G.I. Joe Origins. Do not waste your time, even if you are doing 10,000 other things that weekend and you've just got an hour and a half to two hours and you want to watch something mindless. Pick anything else. Seriously, pick anything else. And then this week I watched Uncharted. But no, to your point about Spider-Man, I really need to watch it too because... Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness is coming out. He was in that. There's going to be references from that movie and this movie. And, oh, dear God, I'm behind the curve here, Ray. I've got to watch it. I haven't missed a Marvel movie yet in the theater until the freaking pandemic. God bless him. But I really want to see it real soon. I'm disappointed to hear that about Snake Eyes. And the reason I say that is, as a kid, my dad allowed, we were on a farm in the middle of nowhere, 11 miles from the nearest town at one point. And my dad let my brother and I get comic book subscriptions delivered to the farm. And one of them was G.I. Joe. And I had the issue with Snake Eyes Origins in it. Loved that comic. And there's also, G.I. Joe did, Marvel did another unique thing with uh, G.I. Joe. There's an issue where there's no words at all. There's no dialogue in the entire issue. And I loved it. And it's with Snake Eyes. Um, and so I loved the character. I loved the backstory and origins. But seeing what they did to the last G.I. Joe movie, I wasn't really thinking there was going to be anything great out of the Snake Eyes movie. It was. I was so disappointed. I love action films, which is, I don't think it's an odd thing. I love action films. I, I even like The Fast and the Furious. And I, I was very, very lucky in that... When the first Fast and Furious film came out, I was in L.A. and I met Vin Diesel and Paul Walker and I cannot find my photos anywhere. They were at Universal Studios with a couple of the cars from the film. Amazing experience. But I cannot find the photos and it's really disappointing. I was thinking about it the other day and I racked my brain, but I have moved four times. So in all likelihood, they are gone. And it was before a digital camera. It was physical, printed camera roll anyway less of that I love that kind of film and I have never watched a film that has no storyline before there's no plot there's no development no character development nothing and I just sat there watched this film and thought to myself what is actually happening here I think that with that kind of film you need to have, especially when you've got fans who love the backstory. The same as with anything. You read any adapt you read any book and they adapt it into a film. It has to be 
done for the people that read the book or enjoyed the comic book. And that's what Marvel has done right. And DC has unfortunately not quite mastered. They have taken something that was quite small and made it into something bigger because they've had the ability to adapt it and grow it. And to that point, a lot of the stories in the Marvel Universe aren't exactly to the comic because God bless my wife, she gets to sit next to me in the theater when I go, that wasn't in the comic. Yeah, and That's also right. we know that Ego wasn't Peter Quill's dad. Right, but to your point, they still adapted in a way that make the fans who are watching it go, oh yeah, I know it's not right, but oh my God, this is a lot of fun. What a great movie, this went real well. And you can say that for pretty much all of the Marvel movies, but I still love them. Yeah, but I still love them all the that's the thing. Ultron was the one that really bugged me because we know that Pym created Ultron and they bring Pym into the universe. So why? I'm one of those weird people that I know that there's a lot of things people don't like. I try to find something in a movie I can enjoy. But as we mentioned, there are some movies that you're just. <laughs> you, you just know, can't. <laughs> you, you just can't find any single thing to, to like. Um, I've actually watched the Captain Marvel movie probably just as many times as I've watched. Um, Captain America uh, Winter Soldier, which I think is the best of the group. See, my, that's, I think the for me, there is that disconnect between what's best and what's my favorite, because my favorite will forever be Iron Man. The film is, for me, it was the foundation and it was, I've, I've followed Robert Downey Jr.'s career and that for me was, it was just him. It was the perfect film. I know that Winter Soldier is directed better. Script is far tighter. The action sequences are incredible. That motorbike, motorbike chase and everything else, incredible. But for me, it's Iron Man. Even though I'm on Captain America's side in Civil War, it's still Iron Man. Wow, you're just kind of all over the place in the Marvel Universe here. Yeah. Love you, Iron Man, but uh, I got Captain America's back. Go to hell. Um, yeah, but he's got the better ass. <laughs> well, it's America's ass, according to Endgame. That's the thing. I mean, I do a Chris Evans season. This I did my second one this year, so it, you can see where I'm going on that one. But he was in the right in Civil War, but Iron Man is overall my preferred character. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. In, in the second Captain, uh, excuse me, Iron Man movie, he talks about being a phoenix and being the living embodiment of going into captivity and coming out and, and, and reemerging. That's what that whole franchise did for his career. Oh, it absolutely. Really is. And yeah. I always liked him in his younger years, but my God, do I enjoy him in his movies now, especially as Tony snark, snark, Tony Stark because of the snark, right? He yeah. plays that character so well. That was the moment his career really kick-started again after all of the troubles that he'd had and they weren't they weren't even considering him for the role originally that role made his made him back because he's always been an amazing actor and, and I'm really glad it did because I enjoyed him that and then of course that that also led to him being in the Sherlock Holmes movies and I've already shared my opinions of those on my podcast I liked them they're not all dedicated yada 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 to the actual Sherlock Holmes canon, but I thought he did a wonderful job in those too. So I, I, I like him as an actor and I see your point on how Iron Man is your absolute favorite. Yeah, that's it though. I mean, you talk about Sherlock Holmes and you, your episode is fantastic. I will post a link to it so you will know where to find it. It's a really good episode. It goes in depth into the character and his stories. And I've loved that episode, but I love Sherlock Holmes. I like mysteries in general. But I'm always reminded when I see the Guy Ritchie movies of the Steven Spielberg film, The Young Sherlock Holmes, which I grew up loving. It was a TV series at one time, wasn't it? Or were they movies? It was a film. Yeah. It was one single film. The, the TV series that was made from a Steven Spielberg was Young Indiana Jones with oh, Sean sorry. Patrick Flannery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I got, I got my young series confused. Yeah, Sorry about that. but the young Sherlock Holmes film was a one-off, and it was really. I actually enjoyed it. I liked the 
combination of magic and myth and it mixed in the Egypt and revenge and the origins of Moriarty and everything else. And that is what the Guy Ritchie films reminded me of in their styling. You know, it's another really good uh, Sherlock Holmes movie. The Great Mouse Detective by Disney, the Amanif. Basil the Great Mouse Detective. Yeah, Basil Baker Street. I just watched that again recently and I forgot... Wow, they really do a wonderful ode to Sherlock Holmes. And and I don't like the way they portrayed Watson. They make him the short, dumpy, heavy, overweight guy again, which the movies did early on. But then that's exactly how they did young Watson in Young Sherlock Holmes. He was the geeky, little nerdy, slightly overweight, glasses-wearing nerd. But he wasn't that in the novels. Anyway, you and I, we'll, 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 we'll run on about 20 different tangents on 20 more things before we finish up with this. So I'm sorry if I have been instigating some of the rambling. It's what I do. <laughs> that is absolutely fine. The thing is, I think what we've what we've accomplished with this is we have determined that the call for the dead is the origin story, but it's also the ending tale because it is the bookend. And You've also said exactly why you chose it. And it was an interesting proposition for me because, as I said, it's been years since I've read Le Carre and I had never read this before. So it introduced me to a new tangent to go off on when it comes to my reading. So it may well be that I discuss another Le Carre, maybe even another book featuring George Smiley at a later date because that's what this is about. When I, I always say, when I ask somebody to come on, what book do you want to talk about? Because that's how you find out about other people's reading tastes. And also, if I kept on saying, oh, well, this is the book I've read, I wouldn't necessarily find a new author. And that's what these are for. These are to introduce you, my readers, and myself to new books, new authors, new genres, and everything else. And it's really interesting to find out why somebody else likes it. And we didn't spoil it. No, we didn't. We didn't give away that uh, that it was the butler. It was the It was the butler. Uh, for those when you read it, just remember the butler in the private it, club. The butler in the private club is the one behind the money laundering scheme. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> which has nothing to do with yeah this story. But no, it, it really is that. And discovering new authors and new books to me is a lot of fun. Last year, um, March, I, I really got into Audible. I discovered three new book series by three authors I've never read before. And I think I listen to, for me, this is a lot. I know not not specifically you, Ray. I know you, you devour books. But last year, I, I read 50 books. And for me, that's a big deal. I read 50 books last year. You probably read that last week. But <laughs> what I'm saying is it's it's that fun adventure, right? That that rediscovery of something that you're like, oh, my God, this is so much fun. And I really think Lakari in this novel, Call for the Dead, it reignites that love of spy novels because it is well written the characters are developed well and it's not a complicated story or long story but it's fascinating enough that it hooks you right away and they develop and everything's laid out to you in time and i think in the right way in the right doses i never felt like come on move the story along or uh because what i hate is when i'm reading a book and i figure out the end before i get there and not just like a chapter or two i mean like halfway through and i'm like oh well this is this is what's going to happen and then when i find out i'm right i'm like i'm disappointed uh the most recent book for that was origins by dan brown daniel brown i haven't read that one i've read most of his hang on have i read that one i'm gonna look at my bookcase now and discover that i have it i have not got that one but i think i may have read it i think it may be one of the ones that i loaned to my mom and never got back Anyway, thank you so much for coming on and talking about books. What are you reading at the moment? I'm actually re I'm reading two things. I'm reading one, uh, a book on a new translation of Spanish documents from the Spanish Inquisition in the New World from 1520 to 1530. Yeah, an exciting, fun read. Um, uh, uh, just to let you know, the church did it. Isn't um, this the one you're reading for a future episode of your podcast? It is. And, and the downside is I've got some good ideas. I just think that 
this might be too dark of a subject for me to turn into a lighthearted fare of a podcast show. You could use the quotes from the Flying Circus. Or even No Mel one expects the Spanish Inquisition. Or Mel Brooks in uh, History of the World Part 1. The yeah. Inquisition. Let's begin the Inquisition. There you Workouts go. And, um, so I'm reading that. It's more for research. There are some interesting things. They explain all of the rules on what's required on how to torture somebody in the Inquisition. So there's some really, and, and this is all translated, newly translated documents. The other book I'm uh, I'm rereading uh, for an upcoming episode too is um, Stormfront with uh, Harry Dresden, The Dresden Files. Uh, I'm currently reading that by Jim Butcher, rereading it. Uh, friends of mine, we just did Monster Hunter International. Here in, in, in a few weeks, we're going to be doing that one. So that's uh, where I'm at right now. Very similar books, as you can tell. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, that's quite funny. Before we started recording, we did discuss the Harry Dresden books. And I mentioned how I, I have the first few on my bookcase and Stormfront is my favorite one of the of the three that I own, but also my favorite of the seven I've read. I, I think there's 17 now or 19, one of the two. I, I've read them all. Some of them were good. Some of them I thought they were just killing time to get to the next book. But I, I'm fascinated. I think Jim Butcher's a good author. He created a very imaginative world, but I also believe Monster Hunter International and Larry Korea does the same thing in, in, in that. I think great use of your imagination and rewriting rules of how things work. Always like entertaining that kind of in that genre. Yeah. But thank you so much for, for letting me be on the show with you this morning, Ray. Uh, I know we seem to amble and ramble and mosey about into all sorts of different lanes. We can't stay in our lane very well today. But I had a great time. Love your show. I've listened to several, several episodes in the last in the last month. So Really happy you asked me to be on the show. Thank you very much. Well, it's been great. And so where can everybody find you? Uh, my show is uh, What's Shaken with Shaner, the podcast that celebrates in the passion and the madness of the geek, the nerd, and often the absurd. You can find me on all platforms and, and even on good pods. Or you can go to my website, shakenshaner.com. No G in shaken. It's silent for geek. So shakenshaner.com. You can find all my stuff there, episodes uh, I, again, am an indie podcaster like Ray, so uh, all the listens and ratings and reviews is just a plus for us. Um, so thanks for letting me be on the show. And if anybody happens to stumble into my show, thank you in advance. <laughs> thank you ever so much. It's been fantastic chatting with you. And obviously, as with every time I have a guest on, we talk about far more than just the book because books are everything. I will be posting the link to that and his socials in the post-it notes. Thank you ever so much for coming on, Shane. It's been fantastic talking with you about this and everything else. It's been a lot of fun. I can't thank you enough. I hit my word count. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you for listening and a massive thank you to Shane for joining me. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family? And please post a star rating on Good Pods, Spotify or Podchaser. And if you're feeling generous, head over to show some support for Livestream for the Cure. You'll hear me as never before if you tune in at 2pm EST, which is 7pm in the UK, on Thursday the 19th of May. You can follow me on Twitter at being underscore bookish and on Instagram at beingbookishpod. Or you can check out my website beingbookish.co.uk. Well, I need another cup of coffee and to select another book from the shelves. So until next time, this is me saying farewell. Farewell.